Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a park under a highway in the South End. Changes coming to the Boston City Council and the TSA's medical marijuana mix-up. It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, there's no denying it, women are funny. Years ago, it would have been a Will Ferrell who would have become a mega movie star. And now we're seeing a lot of the women break through. We're seeing Kate McKinnon skyrocketing to be the star of SNL. Three funny ladies from Boston's Women in Comedy Festival crack us up. But first, joining me in the studio to discuss this week's local stories you may have missed, Gen Dumshus, State House reporter for Mass Live. Welcome back, Gen. Thank you. Sue O'Connell, host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hey, Hi, Kelly. Sue. How <laughs> good to see you. And Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and the Revere Journal. Hello again, Seth. Okay. All right. I'm going to start with a story that just continues to be annoying uh, for me, I have to say again. And that's anything that has to do with medical marijuana in this state and beyond, because these poor people waited and waited and waited to get access to medicine for them. And then there's always some hiccup. This time it's with the TSA. Explain, please. So the TSA launched a new website that basically you could punch in. I'm interested in bringing this on or I don't know how to handle this. And the TSA will say, like, yes, this is good, or you should put this in your check bag, or you should not bring it on. And it seemed like when they launched the website, there was a hiccup on the back end where if you search for marijuana, the website would say, it's okay to bring medical marijuana on the plane in your carry-on or your check bag. And a marijuana activist actually found that out and put it on Twitter and said, like, hey, guys, look at this. This is huge because the Trump administration has taken this kind of confusing stance on legalized marijuana and medical marijuana. This is a pretty big step. Well, TSA saw all those tweets, and other people started asking, like, well, wait, is this true? This is the official website. And TSA had to backtrack and say, nope, we screwed up, we made a mistake, and that's not the case. And they quickly fixed it, but it does illustrate the frustrations. If you're a medical marijuana user, your life is complicated in so many ways. Uh, from an employer standpoint, you could get in trouble with your employer. And I know Beacon Hill is working to see if they can fix that. But it's a frustrating aspect when your state, Massachusetts, passed medical marijuana in 2012. I know. It's uh, ridiculous. It's been, it's been a long <laughs> yeah. time. We've got, we've got about 10 medical marijuana dispensaries now across the state. There is one in downtown Boston. You can never tell because it's, it's got this very nondescript front. But it still shows that how much, as far as culture is moving in the direction of marijuana legalization, medical marijuana legalization, there's still a long way to go and there's still a lot of bumps in the road. And Seth, we are talking about medical marijuana. I realize that even within that context, there has always been some confusion because marijuana on the federal level is still considered a drug and not a useful one. And now it's more complicated because we've passed in this state recreational marijuana. And we know that Jeff Sessions, who's the attorney general, has mm -hmm. said, I don't approve of this. Yeah. But there's got to be some way 
that at least people who are using it and they have a doctor approved, you can't get it just, you know, this with doctor, that they should be able to take this on the plane as I can mm-hmm. if I put my medicine in a bag and explain to somebody. Yeah, I... Um... There's more questions than answers on, on this yeah. whole subject. I, it reminds me of housing developments, public housing. Right now there's a discussion in the same vein of thought where some public housing is state-owned and some is federal-owned. So if you have a medical marijuana or recreational marijuana coming soon and you're caught and you live in federal housing, you could get in trouble. But a block away at your aunt's house, if you're there, you can't get in trouble. So no one really has an answer to that. Um, the housing authorities are kind of scratching their head. Um, they say, oh, it's unrealistic, but is it? You know, yeah. if you're talking about somebody's housing, if you're going to get caught and kicked out, it's pretty realistic. Um, no one can answer that. Just like the airplanes, federal buildings. <laughs> if you go to, to a federal Airport. building <laughs> yeah, exactly. or if you go into City Hall, you might be okay. But if you go across the street to the O'Neill building, uh, maybe not. So, Sue, I'm thinking that somebody's going to end up being a test case um, yeah. lawsuit. Because this, is this, just like, this is just like when the Defense of Marriage Act mm. on the federal level said that uh, marriage was only between a man and a woman. And the state of Massachusetts said that marriage equality was extended to same-sex couples. So if I were married and traveling out of the country and went to re-enter the country through customs, I could not enter as a married couple. I would have to enter as separate because the federal government didn't recognize my marriage because it was the Defensive Marriage Act did this. So, you know, like anything else, it's always in the lawsuits that sort of rush this forward as it should be so there's federal protections for people trying to carry their medicine. And I know in the same-sex marriage cases, it was in the divorces that pushed it forward. You know, if, if one state would recognize a divorce, if the government didn't recognize it, but it was legal in Massachusetts, but not legal in Texas. So at some point, someone's going to have to sue the government with a perfect case, with the perfect plaintiffs, and try and rush this forward. I don't understand these sort of challenges come up a lot because of the way we're structured. You yeah. know, we got 50 yeah. states with 50 state constitutions. And until we can figure out a way to, to get exemptions for states or something that agree, I don't know. But this is a, a problem that we keep having on these issues. And I think it's a particular problem because it's marijuana. Right. You know, if it was something else, as the Obama administration sort of just looked the other way and didn't deal with what could have been some federal intervention, mm-hmm. given what our laws are, confusing as they are. But that's not happening now. So we'll see what happens. But it's ridiculous. That's all I can say. Hey, rah, rah for the women over at the formerly (laughs) what we know was the BRA, Seth, and now is the Boston Planning (laughs) and Development Agency, the BPDA. So for the first time, more women than men are in are in charge over there. Yes. Overall workforce is more than 50 percent female now. And that's significant because this is a planning agency and it's almost like one of those industries where women have really just come in to being um, more active. Now, they did mention, just a qualifier, they did mention some high-level positions where um, women have ser- are serving now, but those have actually been filled by women in the past, too. So I'll say that as a qualifier. But the results are that in the last couple of years, the tables have turned to having more female employees than male at, at this planning agency that's been dominated by men for a long time. And the real good question, which no one can answer yet, but in the future with more women looking at how to plan the city and what needs to go where and what makes sense where, how's that going to make Boston look? That's going to be interesting. Well, Sue, I'm just going to go right to you and Mm -hmm. say, 
Won't it be better? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the, the BRA or the so-called agency, whatever we're calling it now, I mean, it's a troubled, it's got a very troubled past in terms of organization, outreach to communities before things get done. You might remember under the Menino administration, the late Mayor Tom Menino, that developers had agreed to pay money and fees to the city, but there was no bookkeeping to ensure that it happened. So it didn't happen and no one knew what it was. And under Mayor Marty Walsh campaigned that he would change the BRA, and he has. So I'm sometimes not as optimistic as I used to be that if women ruled the world, it would be a better place. (laughs) But these are steps forward in the right direction, I think. And it's such an incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. organization. I I feel like that that can't be understood. The quasi-public-private, yes, it's very powerful. And it's, it's uh, I mean, back in the days when uh, it destroyed an entire neighborhood. The West uh, End. The, the West End. Mm-hmm. And, and you had, like, Ed Logue, who was the head of it. He was talked about as a mayoral candidate. Did he end up running for mayor? I can't I, remember. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. been, before yeah. my time. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's such an incredibly powerful agency, and it flies under the radar quite mm-hmm. a bit. If you're a neighborhood activist, you know who they are. They know mm-hmm. who you are. But by and large, it's it's still kind of flying under the radar. Well, if history serves around the world, not just in this country— Typically, when women finally get in mm-hmm. charge of the thing, their A is some organization, their B is True. some consensus in mm-hmm. terms of how we move forward, which should mean, should mean, I, I hear you, Sue, but it should mean that more community folks' voices will be considered before they just put the big hammer down as they have been doing in the past. Now, what I'm interested in is there's a little bit of a dichotomy if the women are in charge at this very powerful flying under the radar agency, but the folks coming in to talk to them are still about, men. Yes. <laughs> Uh, are mostly men. Yes. And they're of powerful development agencies. Mm -hmm. You know, so there is going to be, I'm imagining, some reckoning, Seth, with their coming Mm -hmm. to grips with the fact that, hey, these are the people in charge now. Well, that's that's (laughs) true. And and yes and no, there are some pretty powerful development companies in Boston that that have women out front. Yeah, but you you make a good point there. And uh, one of the things that's going to be interesting is whether the culture of the BRA, BPDA will be more powerful than the instincts of a female who's in in charge. And a lot of people wonder if that's actually going to really, uh, you know, which is going to win here (laughs) because uh, the culture of the BPDA, while it's evolving, is is still there. Yeah, the the confrontational aspect of, you know, the, the community activists, for good reason, suspecting them. And the developers hoping that they can get them to do their will. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the BRA itself, sometimes in the past, operating as a sort of secret organization without much transparency. I mean, I think it's a lifetime movie in the making. Yeah, and, well. and these, these women are, are, you know, they didn't just, like, land here. They came they've up through here. the ranks. Yeah. They've, they've learned the trade and everything, and they, they, they believe in the mission, so... Well, you can believe in the mission and been sitting there the whole time waiting for your shot, as well, Hamilton said. We'll see. We'll <laughs> Hamilton see. waited for his shot. All right, so we'll see what happens. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Gin Dumshus of Mass Live, Sue O'Connell of NECN, Bay Windows in the South End News, and Seth Daniel of the Independent News Group. And we're talking about all things Boston and New England and local news. So in your arena, Sue, Mm -hmm. there's a park coming beneath the highway over in uh, the south end. This is very interesting. Yeah. In fact, there's a. I just want to lead into there's a number of things happening in in the uh, south end that Seth's going to weigh in on something else. But but let's talk about this park first. Yeah, this is I find (laughs) this so exciting because having lived in the Boston area my entire life, this area that used to be known as the Stacks, which is under 
under the expressway, sort of between the South End and South Boston. If you've gotten your car towed, you know that that's where the car <laughs> lot is. Uh, it's where the flower exchange is that Seth's going to talk about in a minute. And this has always been a very dangerous, homeless people have lived there, dirty. And over the past five years or so, people have really taken a different look at what to do with this space. And one of them was to add parking, which uh, once they did, it seemed like a big no-brainer. Let's let's <laughs> put lights on it, let's pave it, and let's charge for parking, mm-hmm. which they've been doing. And now the folks that have developed the Ink Block, which is where the Whole Foods is as you're going by on the expressway, right? Couldn't be more fabulous. You've got all this condominium development happening and new buildings. And they have looked out and said, well, why don't we make this some sort of underground park underneath the expressway? which would bring in vendors and we'll have things for kids to do and there'll be outdoor area. And what it will essentially do is connect the neighborhoods, connect the South End and South Boston, which would be a good thing. And it would also allow you to connect to the waterfront walking park, which I know most Bostonians haven't done. I rode it on a bike last year. It's Hmm. an amazing walkway, which connects like the entire city from the north end with some incredible views. But people just aren't really aware that it's there. And it has some breakups, like especially between the south end and south Boston. So the Ink Block folks, they've shown some great drawings of what this can be. You know, immediately some people are reacting under an expressway. You know, what I think think that sounds cool. I think it really sounds like a, a, a fun thing to do and a great idea. The Ink Block is also the group that tried to add the additional South End Open Market, Mm, if you've been following that saga. So the new South End Open Market that was at the parking lot is not going to happen. But I have a feeling that Chris Macy is going to be involved in this. This is just my my prediction. Mm. Seth's agreeing with me, so I think he has the inside dope. Mm. So this will just add to what's been happening in the South End, which is a lot of open, touristy, but still local resident involvement. So I'm excited about this. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited. But Seth, before you go to the flower exchange and what's happening there, let me just say, don't go in that Whole Foods unless you're dressed properly because you will <laughs> run into everyone you know. Yeah. I have been in there. I True. cannot believe yeah. who goes in that Whole Foods. Anyway, go ahead. Again. I just, just want to add, uh, there was a Dorchester resident on Twitter. He goes by Welcome to Dot, and he yeah, pointed yeah. out there there is a, a similar space under I-93 right by JFK UMass train station, and it's kind of this dank, kind right. of uh, dark sure. thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it'd be nice to see that kind of activation of that space similar mm-hmm. to the South End. Because if we look through history, what I-93 did is it split Dorchester. Yeah, that's it was a right. gash. It was a gash. Right. Uh, and, and you have Columbia Point on one side and, and you have mm-hmm. the rest of Dorchester on the other. So, and the same would have happened if not for Milnea Cass on the south end. That's yeah, right. Mm. That's right. So it would be nice for something similar to happen to Dorchester and, and knit the neighborhood back together there in the mm-hmm. sub-neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll add, too, mm-hmm. that um, the Department of Transportation is considering things in Tobin Bridgeland under mm-hmm. Charlestown. Oh, wow. wow. Chelsea has already got a park. They're beginning going to be building in the spring under the Tobin Bridge there. Wow. So under bridges, under expressways <laughs> is now hot property. <laughs> well, no, and then, you know, if Should you go, be. if you travel around other cities, yeah. fun things like this are happening in other cities, and it really does draw a lot of people. Now, <laughs> Seth, tell us about the what was the space where the flower exchange was yeah. and what's happening there. Yeah, well, the hmm. flower exchange um, vacated shortly after Valentine's Day, and um, they moved to Chelsea, and they found a good home there. But the Abbey Group, which um, you might recognize from the old Sears building in Fenway, Mm -hmm. which is the the theater and everything, Landmark Center, they have purchased it, and they've got big plans. And 
So we've praised the BRA a little bit, BPDA. Now we're going to. Well, you guys, that was faint praise, let me point out. Faint praise. praise. <laughs> well, we were somewhat favorable. Now okay. we're going to move we to. We were as negative as we wanted to be. <laughs> okay. I think what's so now we get a chance to go the other okay. way. Yeah. So anyway, um, this is exciting because this is 5.5 acres. It's right on the expressway. This is a group that has exciting plans almost everywhere they go. And it's not going to be residential. It's all commercial, like 90%. They're looking to, uh, well, I can't say that on the radio, but they're looking to really shut down Kendall Square and bring everybody over. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah, well, you they just said, said it. You know, okay. kick, kick somebody's, you know. And, okay, um, got so it. So <laughs> that's what they want to do. And, mm-hmm. and about 10% is retail, but they've got this 30,000 square foot civic space. It's like the size of Symphony Hall. Wow. You know, that they've, that's part of the deal. But the real interesting part of this is they have not even filed with the city yet. <laughs> They've been to like 10 neighborhood groups. Mm-hmm. They're having an open house on the site in a couple of weeks. And they've yet to even uh, really file any paperwork with the BPDA, which I don't know how they feel about that, but I have a feeling they don't like that so much. So this is like the Abbey Group is doing their own ad hoc development review process with neighbors first, and the neighbors will love yeah, and it. and actually getting the neighbors' input first before yes. they go to the BRA. I don't know what's wrong with that. What's wrong well, with that? Well, they never do it that yeah. way because they get permission from the BRA first, and then mm-hmm. they go and sell it to the community organizations. Yeah. Or try to sell it. Try to sell mm-hmm. it with negotiable points that they know they're already going to let go. And that's why you have the suspicion mm-hmm. with community groups when dealing with developers because it's already been set. Right. The die's already been cast, and you're just going to get some layups that they're going to agree to. And that's why this mm-hmm. is so exciting is that the Abbey Group's actually asking the residents first what mm. they think. You yeah, know. even uh, the um, South End Forum, which is a pretty powerful group of many neighborhood associations. There. Of the 5,222 yes. <laughs> organizations in the South End. They, okay. have, they actually have one commu- group. That, one group for every block almost. But so. some people don't uh, don't adhere to it. Others most do. So anyway, um, yeah, their, their moderator, Steve Fox, says this is a test case for maybe the whole city yeah. when you're talking about big development because the BPDA has its own Article 80 process and there's these things called IAGs, impact advisory groups that are appointed people that try to get mitigation, you know, get their pound of flesh, as they say. But, and I, I know and everybody's get, suspicious of that. Yeah. And, you yeah. Know, it's like, who are these people? All of this is right in the shadow of the bio lab, by the way, mm. which I think is important to note because <laughs> right. we have discussions about, which I'm neutral on mm-hmm. regarding the bio lab, but we have discussions about how this bio lab, the University of Boston uh, study of these infectious diseases, level three, level four, is right in the middle of a minority neighborhood, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's also in the middle of a very affluent and culturally active neighborhood. So yeah. we're all in the same boat, I mm-hmm. think. It's important to note. Yeah. Again, yeah. what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think I can see from the group's perspective they might be uh, looking for leverage on that side or flexibility when they go to the BPDA. It could be a reverse where, where the BPDA, BPDA, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm gonna just going to call it the BRA. <laughs> yeah, BRA. I know, I can. Yeah. The former BRA. The there former you go. BRA. Yeah, there you, uh, go. That, you know, it could be a reversal where they're gearing up for a struggle with the BRA and they mm-hmm. want some leverage on, on the other side. That's well, true. all I can say is I don't see why getting more information before you go through a formal process is, should be a bad thing. I mean, I I think to have those voices in there, if nothing else, it should inform the mm. formal process. I agree. You know. This is a signature property. When you're coming in on the expressway, yeah. this is one of the one of the first real things you see before you get to downtown. Exactly. People, people want it to be signature, want it to be amazing. So. And it could be. It so could we'll be. see. They've done a good job over there in that area mm-hmm. with the Fenway and all the rest of the restaurants and everything. Yep. It's really, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. There's very good restaurants and all. All right. Let's talk about this Boston City Councilor resigning. And the upshot is that so many 
changes will be happening to the city council itself. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to say, and I'm going to let you people that follow this more closely weigh in, it seems to me that there doesn't appear to be regular pipeline folks lining up to take those places so that there is a real opportunity for some change. Because, you know, in the past, people would say, I'm not going to run again. But then here's so-and-so who's mm -hmm. been sitting there mm -hmm. for 30 years waiting for you to leave. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. you, and you knew it was coming. So, Seth, start us off. Yeah, well, um, it was kind of shocking news this week on Tuesday. East Boston, Charlestown, North End City Councilor Sal Matina, long career in government, um, 11 years as a city councilor announced that he wasn't going to run again. So he's going to finish out his term, and in November, that's it. You know, it's just a personal decision. He doesn't have anything lined up, as far as as far as far I know. But he's been a very good counselor, and he's kind of was like on at the zenith. You know, there was a lot of great things happening in East Boston. Charlestown is booming. Uh, the North End's always doing well. And, uh, you know, he just chose not to run. So now, it was very surprising. So now you have another vacancy, and this is the third, because Tito Jackson's running for mayor, so he's open in District 7, um, which is part of the South End and Roxbury and a few other and neighborhoods. a little bit Back Bay, back I think. Bay mm -hmm. and Fenway, maybe a yep. tiny sliver. And then you have District 2, which was Bill Linehan, South mm -hmm. Boston, South End, Chinatown, Bay Village, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. downtown neighborhoods. So there's three district seats that are open now to anybody. And, you know, a couple of them, well, Tito's seat was obviously going to open, but uh, Linehan and, and La Matina, mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people no. saw that coming. No. And both of them sort of were like just ready to move on. So now you do. You have different people who um, weren't prepared to run but are good candidates yeah. um, lining up. Could be, yeah. Could anyway. potentially yeah, be good could, candidates. Yeah. And in East Boston, you've got a couple um, who are lining up. There's some real promising people. Um, Charlestown is really looking to grab a seat. They haven't had a seat in years on the council, mm -hmm. their own representative. Mm -hmm. um, it's always been someone from East Boston or the North End. And so they'd really like that. And they've got some interesting candidates coming up. Uh, the North End, who knows what's going to come out of mm -hmm. there. Yeah. District 2 is big because there's South Boston and the South End kind of And the South End wants to get, like exactly. Charlestown once right. has never had a representative. It's always been the South Boston rep. So, right. so there's a lot of good churn going on. Yeah. Again, what do you think? I think with La Matina, I, a couple of years ago, he ran for register of mm. probate. And he lost out to Patty Campitelli, who got taken out of office. And then Felix Arroyo won. And the now eldest. he's yeah, the yeah. elder. And, and now and now he's he's uh, fighting for his role over there. So I'm not that surprised that La Matina wanted, wanted out. Um, I guess my question would be, is counselors voted to raise their pay a couple of years ago? I wonder if that was a factor in terms of oh, uh, pension and everything. I thought about that. I, I, I don't yeah. know when that kicks in or, or yeah. what kind of different mm -hmm. level he gets by retiring. Because he's retired. So next year, he's, he does step down. After. Well, that goes two ways. So, so I was thinking about it when you said that for the people coming in, that finally maybe yeah. it works for them as a wage. Both. Both. You yes. were thinking about his going out. Yeah, he's yeah. going out. Right, so, right. so for yeah. him, you know, yeah. if he's if he's looking, and to the point about East Boston and his area being on the rise now, you know, might as well step down and start benefiting from that surge from the private side rather than the public mm -hmm. side. So I can I can see that being a factor, too. I'd like to vote to raise my Money, my, my salary, so Mine too. I can go on. <laughs> Let's do all that. Well, I think it's a chance to see some brand new faces, so yeah. this will be very exciting. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Gen Dupchus, Sue O'Connell, and Seth Daniel. We're talking about the news you may have missed this week on the local side. Again, you've got the story about changes coming to aging, overcrowded Massachusetts courthouses. And you know what? I haven't been in a courthouse in a while, but I remember the last time, which is a couple of years ago, I thought, 
is this supposed to be atmospheric? I don't <laughs> You know that whole sort of New England shabby chic thing? Because yeah. it's not working. No. <laughs> you okay? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Quincy and the Quincy Courthouse. I've been in there uh, uh, for business reasons, obviously, and it's a hole. It's terrible. So the basically the, the trial court chief justice there, Paula Carey and Harry Spence, the outgoing court administrator, they released this draft master plan for repairing, renovating, and building completely new courthouses. And this is kind of a wish list. This is kind of what they'd like to see after doing an assessment. And what they're seeing is that there's just an imbalance in terms of who's being served underutilized courthouses and overutilized courthouses. And when you look at the greater Boston area, there's a lot of there's a lot of churn and they want to have more of a regional justice center. So they're going to be building a new courthouse in Quincy or they'd like to. And then they also want to build a, a new one in Boston, replacing the one in, in Charlestown. And again, I want to stress this is a wish list. A lot of it is going to change or be modified because once you get local lawmakers involved, mm-hmm. once you get the governor's office involved, right. it becomes a, a political battle about what the court system wants and what everybody else wants. Is this a trend across the country where, you know, where there's consolidation of these buildings and it seems to have made sense in, as a best practice in other places? I think so because it, when if you look at how much technology has already been changing courthouses, you have video conferencing. You have more efficient buildings in some cases. And the court system is pretty cash-strapped often. And it's something they struggle with. The interesting trend I, I noticed in the – jumped out at me in the report, and I'm, I'm doing some more reporting on this, was the increasing number of people – who are choosing to become pro se litigants, and what that means is that they're they're representing themselves. They're mm. by, they're declining to have their own lawyer or go for a lawyer, and they're saying like, you know what, I, I'm just going to do this myself. A lot of that's driven by the fact that a lot of people just don't have the money to hire a lawyer. Okay. Hello. Um, yeah. So yeah. so what the the court system is seeing that, and since this is people's rights, you can absolutely represent yourself. The court system has realized that we need to meet those needs. So that means providing access to a law library, allowing volunteer lawyers to ghostwrite a form for you, uh, court filing. And I think what you're seeing in some of the regional justice centers that have been built recently, they have been opening these service centers to provide for pro se litigants. It's a fascinating report. Uh, I guess if you're a nerd uh, into policy stuff like that, we're going to have to wait and see what happens. When it comes to asking for money, it's always everybody wants their slice. Now, but I also think that underpinning all of this, um, Sue, is the whole upgrading, not only of Mm -hmm. the structure itself, but of the technology. Yeah. You know, the challenge here that we're all in, in, and you just look at UMass Boston as an example, Mm. you know, you start executing a a building plan to meet your vision. And then by the time you get to the buildings being done, your vision may not be valid anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you may suddenly be looking for students for distance learning Mm -hmm. rather than living on campus. And I was heartened to see in, in Gin's report that, you know, they understand, at least in presenting this, that we're doing things with an eye to the future, but we're not sure that we're going to need as many buildings or we're going to need as many courtrooms. So it's a challenge to keep the technology updated and looking to see what the future citizens are going to and how they're going to use it rather than just coming into, you know, as you said, a a district courthouse, a local courthouse, Mm -hmm. um, having, if anyone goes into court, I do feel like I'm in an old timey movie sometimes, you know, and it's a lot of money to update it and the technology is essential. Go ahead. I was going to say from a visual perspective too, let me, let me jump to the opening of MBTA's new government center and Mm -hmm. people going down there and seeing like, look at how bright it is. Look how clean it is. That makes a huge difference for people. So, I mean, if you're sitting in a courtroom and you're either freezing or you're you're yeah. you're dying from the heat that makes a huge difference because 
that colors your experience whether of our you, justice you, system. Of our justice yeah. system. So it's not just about having a nice, shiny new building. It's mm -hmm. about the court system itself and believing that justice can happen and justice is fair. Yes. Well, how about this? Mm -hmm. The last time I was in court, I was protesting a car thing, mm -hmm. and I had the pictures mm -hmm. on my phone. They would not accept the pictures on the phone. Right. You had to print them out. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Seth. Well, I'll, you know? I'll put one plug in for the district court system and uh, maybe something that I don't know that they looked at when they were talking about consolidation. And the district courts have been one of the leading institutions in the opiate crisis. Like mm. drug court That's is true. very popular. That is true. And drug court in Charlestown, which is one of the ones they want to close, is really, really popular. And they it's couldn't move that to regional? Well, let's think about it. You're talking about people in recovery who aren't always the greatest at getting places outside of their community. And it's just another barrier. Mm. I mean, when they can walk 10, you know, five blocks down to Charlestown District Court, um, it's a very strenuous program, the drug court, and, and they're held to high standards by a judge. Now, if you've got to go That's into downtown Boston, uh -huh. are you going to make it there as much as often? Are you going to last in the program, which is daunting? And people have benefited greatly from it. So hmm. I don't know. You know, that's... Okay. They did in, in their analysis of, of so they want to go from 97 courthouses to 75, and this is over you know many, many years. They're not going to just flip the switch. But they did take into account specialty mm. courts like drug courts, and they did take into account how far it would take for someone to take public transportation and go to Charlestown versus something more centralized. Mm -hmm. um, you know That's definitely going to be part of the conversation. And the, the plan is a wish list, but it's also a draft. And they, mm -hmm. and they want public input. They want people to weigh in and say, like, well, okay, maybe like as someone who's been there, I don't think this is going to work. Two things I want to get to before we close out. One is that Alison Bechdel mm -hmm. has been named the cartoonist laureate <laughs> for Vermont. And Vermont's believed to be the only state that regularly appoints a cartoonist laureate. People may know her as the author of a memoir and graphic novel called Fun Home. It was also a Broadway musical, I think, not even a play. And it won five Tonys. And uh, she also won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Mm -hmm. And she is the woman that came up with the Bechdel test for movies about how many times women are featured mm -hmm. as actual mm -hmm. characters and not some prop. Right. You know, and she's just she's a she's a renaissance woman. And uh, Vermont, as they say, they think may be the only state that has a uh, cartoonist laureate. It's fabulous. She's a pleasant person, too. When I interviewed <laughs> yes, her, she when she got her MacArthur and she was just so humble, and, uh, which I guess a all, good egg, all we those talented say. people are. Easter, okay. right? Good egg. Let us remind everyone that tomorrow is actually Patriots Day. It has now become yeah. known as Marathon Monday. And, Seth, you yes. got a piece reminding us that, <laughs> yes. hey, it's Patriots Day. Yes, the National Lancers. <laughs> you might have seen them in parades. They're based in Framingham. Uh, they're a, um, a mounted regiment. Uh, so they go back to the Civil War. They fought in the Civil War, World War I. Then now they're more ceremonial, right? And so one of the things they took on, was reenacting Paul Revere's ride and William Dawes' ride. William Dawes starts in Roxbury. Paul Revere starts, they, I think they start him in the North End. Mm -hmm. um, they used to row him across the Charles River oh to Charlestown. <laughs> um, and purists are very upset that they stopped doing that a few years ago. But they did, and so now he rides. They do a little parade, then he goes to the North End, leaves from the church, the, the Old North Church, rides over to Charlestown, and it's a great, great thing to do on Patriots Day. Kids come out to, in Charlestown to City Square. He makes his announcement, the British are coming, you know, and it's, it's really, 
it's really kind of a very interesting thing, but they are, are a little irritated because for the past 20 years of their 240 years of reenacting this, the marathon has taken over and it's become Marathon Day and they say, do not call it Marathon Day, it's Patriot's, Patriot's Day. Day. We're saying it's Patriot's Day. Patriot's Day. So thank you for that. And thank, thank you, you all for joining me. Thanks, Gail. Thank you. Again, is a State House reporter for Mass Live. Sue O'Connell is host of NECN's The Take with Sue O'Connell and the co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Seth Daniel is a senior reporter with the Independent News Group. Coming up, Amy Schumer, Leslie Jones, Tig Notaro, they're conquering the comedy scene, but making it big in stand-up continues to be a steeper climb for women. Our conversation with three female comics involved in this year's Boston's Women in Comedy Festival. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 